I'm Alexia Russell and welcome to The Detail's Long Read. This week, a new book from Massey University Press, The Crew Murders, Inside New Zealand's Most Infamous Cold Case. It's written by Kirsty Johnston and James Hollings. The murder of Harvey and Jeanette Crew in their Pukakawa farmhouse in 1970 remains New Zealand's most infamous cold case. It spawned two trials, two appeals, several books, a film and eventually a royal commission finding of police corruption and the only free pardon granted by the New Zealand government in history. The case is still unsolved. Kirsty Johnson is an award-winning investigative journalist and she's joining us in the studio today to read an excerpt of her book herself. Kia ora Kirsty. Kia ora, thank you for having me. Take us away. For five days during that miserable winter, no one missed the crews. When they didn't arrive at an evening meeting of the Pukekawa Ratepayers Association at the local hall on Wednesday the 22nd of June, it wasn't noted with any surprise. They weren't regular attendees by any stretch of the imagination, and they weren't the only family missing. Local farmer Arthur Thomas and his wife, Vivian, didn't attend either. A sick cow was due to carve. Len Demler also didn't turn up, but then that wasn't out of character because he never did. The Pukekawa Hall was just off the main road and to get there, many local residents would have passed the crew farm. But no one noticed anything unusual and no one travelling to indoor bowls at Glen Murray or to a table tennis tournament at the Upotea Hall that night saw anything either. The next day, Thursday also passed without any attention falling on the crew farm. But on Friday, the 19th of June, delivery man Emmett Shirley arrived at the crew mailbox to find the bread and milk he'd left there the day before untouched. Shirley paused and glanced up at the little brick house. Usually, he saw Jeanette feeding baby Rochelle her bottle in the room at the front of the house. On this day, however... The blinds in Rochelle's room were down and there was no sign of the family, which he thought was a little odd. He left the family's weekend order of two and a half loaves of bread, three quarts of milk and the New Zealand Herald and drove away. That weekend was a busy one in Pukekawa. The Onefero Rugby Club had its 50th jubilee with a party planned for Saturday night and a game between the old boys and the present players on Sunday. The whole town was excited. Len Demler had a double ticket. The tickets were only sold in doubles at a cost of $8 to the dinner at the Onefero Hall. It started at 6pm with speeches and dancing. Demler drank heavily and didn't leave until 1.30am. When he got home, he turned the radio on and listened to the All Blacks playing their first match of their South Africa tour against Border in the province of Eastern Cape on the radio. The game, which the All Blacks won 28-3, went into the small hours of the morning. Despite his late night, he was up early the next day spraying thistles before attending the Jubilee match on the Sunday afternoon. Harvey and Jeanette didn't show up at either event and Demler didn't contact them or hear from them for the whole weekend. On Monday, Demler's phone rang just before 7am 
It was local stock agent Joseph Moore, who said he'd telephoned the crew house several times over the weekend, but there was no answer. Did Demler know where they were? Was their phone working? Demler told Moore that, as far as he knew, the couple was at home and he had no idea about the phone. Moore decided to visit instead and arrived at the crew home with John Dagg, another stock agent, just before 9am. Dagg knocked on the back door. There was no answer. The men couldn't hear any movement inside the house, so they left the property. When delivery man Emmett Shirley arrived as usual at 9.30, once again he could see no sign of anyone in the house. The milk and bread he'd delivered the previous week was still in the box. Wanting to avoid attracting rats, Shirley threw the bread into the paddock. He decided the crews had gone away without notifying him. This time, he didn't leave anything further. That Monday, Foreman Ronald Wright from Tuaco Transport Limited phoned the crew house several times. A truck was about to arrive to pick up some sheep that Harvey was sending to slaughter, and Wright wanted to make sure the sheep would be ready. Again, there was no answer. Wright phoned Demler to ask if he could go and see Harvey. Concerned enough by now that something was amiss, Demler went outside, got into his red Cortina, and drove down the hill. The crew's green Hillman Hunter car was in the garage when he arrived. There were about ten sheep in the front paddock. Both gates, the one on the roadside and the small gate to the lawn, were shut. As Demler approached the house, he could hear 18-month-old Rochelle talking, but he couldn't see any sign of his daughter or his son-in-law. The outside light was on, he noticed, and the key was in the back door. Stepping inside, he saw Harvey's slippers placed together on the floor. Demler went into the kitchen first. On the table, he saw the remains of a meal of flounder. Most of the fish had been eaten, but the dishes were on the table, uncleared. On the bench, he saw more dishes and more food, including part of an apple and cooked potatoes. And then he saw the blood. It was smeared lightly across the kitchen's lino floor. In the lounge, there was more, with some large stains seeping into the carpet and a trail of blood leading from a fireside armchair across the room, as if something had been dragged towards the hall. He looked in the main bedroom, where the bed was still made. It was empty. Then Demler checked on Rochelle, who was in her cot. The room smelt rank and... Rochelle seemed unable to stand up. She looked very thin, and her eyes were sunken as if she'd been crying. As her grandfather walked into the room, she watched him, making no sound. Instead of taking Rochelle with him, Demler said he panicked and left the house, thinking someone might have been lurking nearby. He drove home and called Ronald Wright to tell him not to come for the sheep. Shortly afterwards, he got back in his car and drove to his neighbour, poultry farmer Owen Priest. Priest was working in a paddock when he heard Demler's car pull up. Demler asked him to go to the crew farm with him. He said, I don't know what's happened up there, but there's a terrible bloody mess. On the way to the house, Demler turned to Priest and said, They're not there. I wonder where the bloody hell they've gone to. 
When Priest walked into the house, the sight of the blood stopped him stone dead. The buggers killed her and done himself in, Demler said to Priest. I tell you, Harvey's killed her. Priest began to walk through the house, first entering Rochelle's room. She was lying propped up on her elbow on her right side in the cot. She wasn't making any noise. She didn't sit up or move when he entered. Priest noticed the bedding and the clothing was soiled, but not extremely so. He then went down the passage to the first room on the right, the master bedroom. The door was ajar. He walked in. He looked in the wardrobe. He walked out. In the hall, he noticed the cord connecting the television set was disconnected. Then he looked through the rest of the rooms. In the kitchen, he noticed a bottle of milk on the bench. He sniffed it, finding it had soured. When he got to the bathroom, he looked around for Demler, who was still standing by the front door. It struck him that he'd gone through the entire house on his own and that somebody might have been in one of the rooms and could have attacked him. Demler repeated that Harvey had done Jeanette in. Priest turned to him and said, Look, Len, we don't know what's happened. It could have been a third party. Together, Demler and Priest then searched the hay barn, the chicken coop, the dog pen and the wool shed. Nothing. Even the three dogs were quiet, although it was evident they'd had no food and no water for some time. The men went back inside through the back, through the kitchen, into the lounge and out the front door. This time they noticed more blood on the hearth and on an armchair on the front door. There were smears on the porch and flecks on some bricks near the steps. Having finished their search, the two men went back into Rochelle's room. Demler picked the baby up from her cot and wrapped her in a blanket. She put an arm around his neck. Priest picked up a teddy bear from the cot. Outside, they put Rochelle in the car with the teddy bear. It took some effort for Demler to get the baby to sit down because she didn't want to let go of him. Demler dropped Priest at home and then drove a further seven kilometres to the home of a family friend, Barbara Willis. When Demler arrived at Willis's home, sometime between 2.15 and 2.30pm, he parked the car in the driveway and went inside to ask for help. Willis came out to find Rochelle in the front seat, still wrapped in her blanket. Demler picked Rochelle up and gave her to Willis and then promptly left, upset and in tears. Willis, who had three children of her own, took Rochelle straight inside, undressed her and put her in a bath. She'd been wearing night nappies, a cloth nappy with another folded inside it lengthways, and she had a nappy rash that had turned to blisters. The nappies were sodden with urine and caked with hard feces. The smell was fetid. Willis concluded the nappies were beyond washing and threw them in the fire. Rochelle was cold and rigid. She shook as if in shock for hours. Her eyes were very sunken with dark rings and the whites were bloodshot. She was weak and either couldn't or wouldn't stand up. She clung to Willis desperately that day and for days afterwards. Willis couldn't put her down out of her arms. After the bath, Willis phoned the local doctor, John Lightbody, who arranged for the district nurse, Nancy Crawford, 
to deliver some cream for the rash. Willis didn't think the baby needed further medical attention. She fed Rochelle a boiled egg and some bread and butter, ice cream, peaches and a drink of milk. And then the child was sick. But she was still thirsty and kept wanting more milk. Willis noticed that any time the phone rang, Rochelle became very upset. Whenever Willis picked up the receiver to answer, she would push it out of her hands. When Crawford arrived with the cream around 4.30pm, she too noticed that Rochelle was very upset, hollow-eyed and very dehydrated. She also noticed that the tissue on Rochelle's legs was soft, as if she'd rapidly lost weight, and that she was struggling to stand. Looking at the rash, Crawford, like Willis, concluded that Rochelle's nappies hadn't been changed for a few days. She recommended that Willis give Rochelle fluids with glucose for the following 12 hours, but didn't prescribe any further medical treatment. Meanwhile, the first police officers began to descend on the crew property. As soon as Demler dropped him home, Owen Priest telephoned the Tuaco police station to report the disappearance of Harvey and Jeanette. Constable Wiley, the sole officer at the station, took the call at about 2.20pm. Wiley collected Priest on his way to the house. He made a cursory search and then used the crew's telephone to call for more help. Then Wiley noticed something strange. The clothes dryer in the kitchen was switched on, but the fan wasn't working and it was emitting a huge amount of heat. Thinking it was unsafe to leave it on, Wiley turned the dryer off at the wall. Then, upon instructions from his superiors, Wiley locked the back door and waited outside with Priest. By then, Demler had arrived back at the farm. He had some sheep in the yard and wanted to draft them while waiting for the police. More and more cars began to pull up at the farm gate as locals heard the news that something terrible had happened at the crew house. When Detective Inspector Bruce Hutton arrived at the farm from Auckland around 4pm, he was horrified, he told David Yallop in 1977. It was a crime scene and the cars were contaminating it. He got the vehicles and people out, but by that time the damage had been done. Hutton, who was 41, had been a farmer before he became a policeman in 1948 and had even gone back to farming during a break from the force. By the time of the crew case, he was the head of the Otahuhu Criminal Investigation Bureau, renowned as an efficient, energetic detective with experience of at least 30 homicide investigations. But none of those cases were as troubling as what he found from when he first stepped inside the crew home. It bore no relationship to the many other investigations he'd undertaken or any that he had read or studied. Not just one, but two persons missing and a child alive in a cot. After working to secure the scene from further contamination, which was something of a lost cause given some evidence, such as any footprints in the mud at the gate, had possibly already been destroyed by either visitors or sheep, Hutton went through the house with a pathologist, Dr Francis Cairns. They focused mainly on the bloodstains on the armchair in the living room, the blood patches on the carpet, and the drag mark. Between them, Hutton and Cairns decided that, given the amount of blood, they were most likely dealing with a homicide, or perhaps even a double homicide. 
As there were no signs of a gun having been used, the most likely weapon was either a sharp weapon causing wounds or a heavy blunt weapon causing head injuries. It was thought likely that the drag mark indicated that one of the victims, probably Harvey because he was a man weighing 16 stone, had been dragged out of the house through the front door. They also decided that whatever had happened must have occurred on Wednesday, given that the Thursday Herald and the milk for the 16th of June were still in the letterbox. On these assumptions, Hutton began assigning his team their roles. Pat Gaines was put in charge of the search, which began that night with 20 farmers and 10 policemen scouring the farm for the couple or the weapons. Other officers were put in charge of cataloguing the scene, interviewing witnesses, canvassing the area and taking photographs and fingerprints. One of the detectives, Murray Jeffries, took a brief statement from Len Demler during the afternoon. At some point, Demler also spoke to the press, who'd swiftly caught wind of a dramatic event unfolding in rural Auckland. By that evening, the first article was already on the newswire. The opening line read, Police fear for the safety of the parents of a starving baby found in a blood-spattered Pukekawa farmhouse this afternoon. Demler told the reporters what he'd told the police. He'd found the house empty except for baby Rochelle and her cot. There were dinner dishes on the table, he said. There was blood on the carpet and on the chair. But the house was not in disorder. The car was in the garage. The three dogs were in their kennels. They couldn't have been fed, but it was a mystery that they'd survived for five days. He told the reporters, I only lived down the road, but I didn't hear them bark. After helping police to search the farm, Demler went home. The crew house was left empty, a police guard stationed outside. Gosh, thanks for that, Kirsty. The whole thing just sends shivers down the spine, doesn't it? And I think largely because of Rochelle. It was just heartbreaking when I heard that she jumped every time a phone rang. And we can just imagine how she'd be stuck in a cot with a phone ringing all the time. Um, any idea what she's up to now? So she spent time with her grandmother and her aunt after her parents were killed. Um, she lived in America for a while. Uh, but she's been back in New Zealand and, yeah, just living her life. She's never really talked publicly. She gave one interview around 2010, 2011, um, when she kind of came forward to call for police to reinvestigate the case, which they sort of did. They did what they called a review of the case, which was released in 2014. And it was good. It didn't obviously find who done the murder, um, but I think she was quite disappointed with the outcome, although she appreciated they apologised to her family, including her grandfather, for the way police had treated him. Now, remind us, for those who haven't read the book, seen the film, read the articles, where were the bodies of Harvey and Jeanette Crewe? So the bodies were found kind of a month, two months afterwards in the Waikato River. Um, Jeanette was found first and then Harvey was found later. Um, Harvey's body was actually weighted down by the axle of a car, yeah, which kind of explains why he took a bit longer for for the police to find him. Right, and I guess, you know, more evidence in terms of the axle. But 
that kind of contamination the police were met with at the crime scene, that must be, oh my gosh, that must be gut-wrenching for every cop who hears about it. The worst scenario that you could come across as an investigator. Yeah, that was a really common theme in this case, just the way that evidence was treated. For example, there's like this other complete mystery at the crime scene where in some of the photos you can see what looks like maybe an oil skin or a tarpaulin kind of in the backyard and then suddenly it's just gone, it just disappeared and during this review in 2014 the police really tried to get to the bottom of it and they just couldn't, like there was some suggestion it had somebody been smoking outside and it had caught on fire which just kind of seems, if it's an oil skin in particular unbelievable but there's a whole bunch of little things like that where evidence just hasn't been treated properly that makes it you know it's extremely difficult to undo that in retrospect. There seems to be a lot of second guessing too like did someone feed the dogs did someone feed Rochelle what do you think has sort of almost contaminated the facts of the case in terms of interpreting human behavior and then looking at the scientific evidence? Yeah that is another major theme where people make assumptions based on behaviour. Like a classic one is Len Demler. Like he obviously was behaving very irrationally and some people think suspiciously. Which Yeah, well, why would you go into the house, think someone's still lurking and run out without your granddaughter? And then you have to think about, well, A, humans aren't rational beings, you know. They behave strangely all the time. And he was quite a kind of reserved odd guy anyway but again like he's panicking he leaves and I think somebody made the point that if he was the killer he would have been trying to appear normal you know so there's all those things where you can read into a situation anything that you want like this whole case is really like that it's like a big puzzle kind of kaleidoscope where you can take it apart and put back the pieces in any way you want and that's what's happened over all these years over 53 years so many people have come up with these different theories but none of them when you look properly really stack up so you don't know who did it I have no idea, which is disappointing, obviously, after writing a whole book. But we chose at the beginning not to try and name a suspect. We really just wanted to lay all the facts out without tarnishing them with our own opinions. Um, I think it allows readers to see the whole picture and then come to their own conclusions rather than being given a theory that where the evidence is kind of marshaled around that theory. What was the significance of the dryer being on? Yeah, I think about this all the time, actually. The publisher and I went back and forth for ages trying to work this out because the dryer only had in it, I think, a pair of socks and a pair of underpants. We were like, why would the dryer only have this? And my eventual hypothesis was that Harvey had maybe been in his good clothes, like they'd been at the sale, and he got wet, but they weren't dirty. So he just popped them in the dryer to dry, But again, it's like one of those things where that's just my interpretation and you can look at it, you can make up whatever backstory you like for that one piece of information and there's hundreds of those things in this case. In one of the other chapters, it talks about the lack of art and curtains in the house and what police thought this said about Jeanette Um, and also commentary on her housekeeping. Was all that a bit weird? Yeah, I found it particularly weird. I think coming from a modern lens, they really felt like, oh, the house is dirty, there's dust on the windowsills. You know, they'd been, um, they'd had a fire and the curtains had 
hadn't been replaced for you know a year and the police are like you know why hasn't she this why hasn't this woman replaced these curtains and I'm thinking her mum's died you know recently she's got a toddler she lives in the middle of nowhere I think she had ordered some curtain fabric but it hadn't arrived you know but they just put again all of these like this lens over her where they decided she was like a slob or a terrible housekeeper and it's like what I'm sorry but what has that got to do with her being a victim of a crime do you think it could have been like pre-preparing excuses for not solving the case like belittling the victim in a way I don't know I think at some point they thought there might have been like a mismatch between her and Harvey like for a little while they thought that Harvey might have killed her so there was all this suspicion about that but yeah I just always found like it wasn't relevant it was actually one of the things that prompted me to get involved in the case I really didn't like the way Jeanette and Harvey as well because they characterized him as like this really angry guy I didn't like how they'd become kind of like caricatures over time Mm. rather than being full humans with, you know, myriad personality traits and full lives and everything like that. That sort of relates to a lot of your other work too, doesn't it, with women and harassment and domestic violence? and Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, bit of, a bit of a soft spot for it. But yeah, at the time as well, when because um, James Hollings approached me about helping him, this was before we even decided to do a book, I was working on other miscarriages of justice cases which were mainly about women, the way women's actions had been misinterpreted and I kind of saw an echo of that in some of the way they, the police notes talked about Jeanette and that's when I decided, okay, well, I feel like I want to have a look at this. Yeah. Did you ever imagine it would turn into a book? I did not. I said to James at the beginning, we are not doing another book because there's like six or seven or eight of them. But then we realised there wasn't a really good summary of the case where the story had been told in full and like a a narrative fashion where you could get your head around it. Like if you really wanted to do this before, you would have had to go to national archives like we did. And that's, I mean, it was fun in some ways, but also really hard work. Well, frustrating too, I imagine, because, I mean, do you think this case will ever be solved? I think the only way it would be solved if, is if somebody... Like deathbed confession or something? Yeah, somebody knows, I think. And I think if they finally decide to unburden themselves, I don't think the evidence now is just so murky with time that I think, yeah, the only way it will be solved is with humans. That was Kirsty Johnson reading an excerpt of her book, The Crew Murders, Inside New Zealand's Most Infamous Cold Case, co-authored by James Hollings and published by Massey University Press. The details long read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, and we'll be back next week with another long read. Kakita Anō.